Have you ever gotten an invoice from a bee? Yes, that kind of bee. Of course, that's a ridiculous question, but it's one that conservationists are increasingly asking to prove a point. Think about it. The main job of a bee is to pollinate, fertilize plants by carrying pollen from one plant to another and another and another. And from that comes fruits, vegetables, flowers, trees. About two-thirds of the crops we eat depend on bees for pollination. The value is in the tens of billions of dollars. But move up the food chain. Almost all livestock depend on those crops. And humans depend on the animals that eat those crops. Unless you're a vegetarian, in which case your diet depends almost entirely on pollination. Without bees and a handful of other pollinators, it would be hard to sustain current population levels on the planet. And not just animal populations, but human populations as well. So back to the ridiculous question. What is the value of bees? What is the value of nature? Our lives are possible because of the services that nature provides. But how do we quantify that value? Bees may never be sending an invoice, but who should be sending the bill? Who pays for nature? And who gets to benefit? Hello, I'm Carol Pino, host of Africa Forward, brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation, AWF, and produced by FP Studios. This season is all about African-led conservation. It's a model that puts people at the center of conservation, with Africans in the lead, and that connects the dots between conservation, climate change, and economic development. In this episode, we'll look at the economic aspects of conservation. How do we value nature, and how should we be valuing it? We'll also look at financing conservation, and explore new and innovative ways that might free up more capital and create a sustainable funding pipeline. Kadu Subunya, CEO of Africa Wildlife Foundation, says conservation starts with understanding the value of nature. And the conversation we need to have with the world and within, within our countries and boundaries of how biodiversity actually contribute to our economic growth and what is its value? What is the price of fertilizing our food? How much should we pay to maintain a forest where the bees go and hide during the dry season, at what's the cost of that? What is its value? Because that conversation needs to happen for us to secure biodiversity. It's called ecosystem services, those services nature provides. Rivers, lakes, and groundwater provide drinking water. Plants and algae use photosynthesis to make oxygen. Bacteria decomposes waste. Plant and tree roots control soil erosion. Forests sequester carbon. The list goes on and on. We're so used to getting all of this for free, so we often take it for granted and don't appreciate what we're getting from nature. And yet, we couldn't live without them. We live in an interconnected world, particularly when it comes to nature. So whether a forest is in Congo or Canada, its ecosystem service is not limited to that local area. It contributes water and oxygen to a much larger ecosystem and is essential for the health of the planet. So what is the value? Haile Mariam Dasalim, former prime minister of Ethiopia, says that understanding the value of Africa's ecosystem services and natural assets would change how the world understands Africa's economic value. I truly believe that the ecosystem services are not properly valued. 
economists and social scientists, they value it in terms of trillions of dollars. I think we have to change the conventional GDP calculation and bring about the natural assets we have. And in that case, Africa is rich, very rich. But that has to be translated into material uh, life. The custodians should benefit out of this. For Haile Mariam, ensuring benefits for the communities who protect that nature is the most important step. The custodians of that uh, asset has to be paid. The real value of that service and the people should get. Actually, it's not the government. The custodians should benefit. Properly calculating the value of ecosystem services can also help address a high priority across the continent, attracting investment. Top of the agenda of risk scenarios at the World Economic Forum is ecosystem risks, and that's driving interest from companies where ecosystem services are key to their core business. Think of Coca-Cola. They've been in Africa for almost 100 years, and for many years have been the biggest employer in Africa. To make soft drinks, you need water, and throughout the continent, Coca-Cola has been heavily investing in preserving and maintaining freshwater sources for their benefit and the communities around them. But how do you determine the true value of a natural asset when the benefits can be so diverse? For most of us, when we drink a glass of water, we aren't thinking about issues like national security, food security, and international relations. AWF Sabunya says these are real issues when it comes to water. He gives an example in Rwanda. How do we value the three rivers in the country Rwanda that are the responsible for fresh water? Only three, and they all come from two forests. How do you value that? These three rivers, should they be national security assets? Life depends on those. Water can also be a foreign affairs issue. Consider Senegal, where much of their water system comes from Gambia, a thin sliver of a country that cuts through the center of Senegal, or the 12 countries through which the Nile flows. Dr. Alhamdou Dorsuma is the Director of Climate Change and Green Growth at the African Development Bank. He's concerned that there isn't enough focus and investment in water. The water is key. Water for drinking, water for food, water for energy. There is significant potential for uh, green groundwater in Africa, but yet we don't put investment on that. AWF Sabunya agrees, but adds that the issue goes beyond drinking water. It's a conversation I'm having with African leaders. In order to develop, you have to industrialize. Where is your source of energy? And the answer I always get is, oh, we have a potential for hydro. That's our biggest potential here on this continent. And then very quickly, okay, so where does water come from? Now, more than 60% comes from protected areas on this continent. So what are you doing about that to ensure that the same volume of water will go through your hydropower generation plants? Dorsuma says climate change is already having an impact on hydropower. We know, for instance, that many African countries rely on hydropower, and this comes from rivers. And those rivers are fueled by the rains that uh, come from the atmosphere. And with the droughts that we see in many places in Africa, you know, rivers are drying. So those countries that rely on those rivers for the access to energy, to electricity, will suffer. But Sabunya says it's not just water. Conserving natural assets can have a huge economic payoff. 
how much will it cost to protect the next virus to stay in its wild places and on wild animals? What will it take? It's conservation. How much have we spent on COVID-19 that we could have spent perhaps 30 years ago to do proper conservation? Historically, conservation financing has come largely from public funds. That could be governments, multilaterals like the World Bank, bilaterals like Norfund in Norway, or even NGOs doing a project financed by government money. There are also private donations, user fees, and limited private investment. But no matter the source, funding has been woefully inadequate. And here again, Sabunia says Africa's nature is not being properly valued. That if you agree that the continent has 30% of the biodiversity, so where would 30% of the global conservation fund, where would that money go? Let's do the numbers. 30% of the world's biodiversity, 20% of global landmass, 16% of total world population. Yet Africa receives less than 3% of all climate financing. Africa didn't cause global warming, but the continent suffers greatly from the effects. According to the African Development Bank, of the 10 most vulnerable countries in the world, nine are in Africa. Climate financing goes towards two areas, mitigation to lower emissions and adaptation to deal with the effects of climate change. Think of it this way. You're in a boat that has a hole in it, and it's flooding. You need to fix that hole, but first you need to bail out the water. Mitigation is fixing the hole. Adaptation is bailing the water. For a continent that emits just 2.8% of global emissions, and yet suffers disproportionately from the effects, what they need is adaptation funding. But 90% of climate funds go towards mitigation. On the mitigation side, there are opportunities. Almost 600 million Africans don't have access to electricity. But that also means that Africa has an opportunity to leapfrog directly into green energy. Najib Balala, who until the recent Kenyan elections was the cabinet secretary for tourism, wildlife, and heritage, says 73% of their energy is green, from wind, solar, hydro, and even geothermal. They're targeting 100% by 2028. But Balala says that even for mitigation financing, the money often isn't there. Also, the fossil fuel guys are powerful people. Yeah, they will not allow you to just switch off their machines where they have a contract, and they'll take you to the international courts. So we need subsidies and compensation for such things to happen. Where is the money coming from? So far, it's been big talk. Nothing much. Conservation is a cross-cutting issue. And with so many African economies dependent on agriculture, which is dependent on conservation, Dorsuma of the African Development Bank says it needs to be addressed across the board. There is a need for vision, need for strategic direction, a need for guidance also to how we are going to harness this opportunity to build economies. We cannot leave it only to the Ministry of Environment, which is actually under-resourced and ill-prepared to address the issue. So it's an issue that needs to be addressed across various sectors, agriculture, energy, transport, etc. When we think of conservation in Africa, we often think of the game parks where tourists visit on safari. There are often beautiful lodges and luxury tented safari camps, but these are mostly privately owned. 
Stop by one of the park rangers' homes and you start to get an idea of just how dire the funding situation really is. Those homes are often dilapidated with unreliable clean water and electricity. The rangers deal with armed groups, unbelievable weather and transport issues, and at times their pay is months, even a year, in arrears. They protect some of the most iconic and some of the rarest animals on earth, but there just aren't enough resources to go around. Most of the international conservation NGOs are operating in Africa, and they bring resources, but there are several concerns. NGOs' programs are often funded by governments and multilaterals outside of Africa, which at times leads them to pursue an agenda that may be in contrast to the priorities of that country's own government. NGOs often claim they can't run their programs through African governments because of corruption, incompetence, and bloated bureaucracies that waste resources. African government officials say those accusations are a case of the pot calling the kettle black. Ethiopia's former prime minister, Halimeriam, acknowledges that government corruption is an issue, but he says international NGOs are often just a transfer of corruption. He describes a $10 million project in a protected area, but only 1% that went to the community. The rest ends up by troubles, tours, conferences, uh, which doesn't include the indigenous and local people, by hiring consultants without bringing any value to the conservation. So that's it. So they want to transfer it from government to international NGOs. That's the play of the day. And I think that's why we should fight. Another outspoken critic is Kenya's former cabinet secretary, Balala, who says international NGOs are trying to be what he calls alternative governments. There's no alternative governments. There's only governments. And nobody can replace governments. And if you want to be effective, through government, help government to be transparent, build institutions rather than building personalities. And if you ever talk about corruption, you go and see the NGO world. What is the cost of running those organizations? Let's be fair. Not all of us are thieves. And not all of us are bad leaders or don't want to do the right thing. Governments are increasingly standing up to NGO overreach. These are global assets, but governments are the custodians, with wildlife and biodiversity governed by the law of the land. But that doesn't mean that the custodians should foot the bill. Again, global assets that benefit us all. Which brings us back to the key question. What is the value of nature? What is the value of ecosystem services, especially when they contribute to all of us having air and water? Let's do a deep dive into some of the innovative financing mechanisms being looked at today. Our exploration starts with an announcement made last year at the New York Stock Exchange. Please welcome Intrinsic Exchange Group to highlight the announcement of the NYSE and IEG launch of Natural Asset Companies, a new asset class of sustainable enterprises. To honor the occasion, CEO of IEG, Douglas Eager, is ringing the opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange. It's a partnership aimed at creating a whole new class of natural assets from all over the world. There still are some steps to complete, including regulatory approval from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, 
But Intrinsic Exchange Group's managing director, Mahalet Berta, says she's keen to see how it can help the world. And as an Ethiopian, she's especially excited at the prospect of bringing it to Africa. We are introducing a new asset class, really anchored in nature and natural assets, which really means we're creating these new types of companies, natural asset companies, whose value is based on nature. And these companies will be going public on the New York Stock Exchange. Actually a separate section of the big board for these natural asset companies. So that's pretty significant. (laughs) So in spite of knowing how important, precious nature is, when you look at our economic and financial systems, its value is really not there, it's invisible. We're essentially pricing it at zero, right? But these natural asset companies are looking to value the broadest suite of services that nature provides. So think about pollination services, flood risk reduction, harboring biodiversity, you know, water regulation. So essentially we'll be converting that natural asset value into actual financial capital to finance conservation, restoration, sustainable livelihoods, but that they're also owned by the natural asset owners that have been stewards of these landscapes for for generations, right? We're really about creating a mechanism that will drive capital to these areas to continue to protect, hopefully grow and restore that natural asset value and also benefit the local communities because you can't really think about conservation in isolation, right? In practice, it looks a lot like a protected area today. Um, But it's going to be a company. It's going to be a for-profit entity. It's going to have a management team and a board of directors and all the governance that goes along with it. It's going to be a publicly traded company. So it's going to have to follow the rules of the New York Stock Exchange. We've also had to create another layer of rules for these companies. So that explicit charter around protection and management of natural assets is really built in the explicit um, prohibitions around extractive activities. That's built in as a rule. It's never been done in the context of a company, right? And so we've had to sort of work with experts in ecosystem service valuation, conservation, traditional accounting to come up with an accounting approach that investors can rely on. You know, as soon as the SEC sort of puts out the rules, this will be sort of open to others to to replicate, which we want. We want natural asset companies flourishing around the world. We want to be able to drive capital to these different conservation priorities and regenerative practices. There's another market devoted to conservation that's getting a lot of attention. It's the carbon market. These markets turn CO2 emissions into a commodity that can be bought and sold. At successive negotiations at the annual UN Climate Conference, countries agreed to work towards limiting the increase of average temperatures to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. That's the range that scientists believe is the tipping point, where it may no longer be possible to stop or reverse global warming. To keep to that goal, countries agreed to cap their emissions, and those caps would continually be lowered over time. There's a finite amount of greenhouse gases that can be emitted before going over the target. Think of emissions as a pie to be divided up. China, the U.S., and India, the three largest emitters, are entitled to about half the pie. The portions get increasingly smaller, until the last few countries are only allotted a few crumbs. But the Paris Agreement means that the pie has to reduce in size every year. 
the big countries could still get half the pie, but the portion is smaller, and it may not be enough for those with big appetites. But what if an enterprising country comes along and says, "We've decided to stop eating pie, but I'll sell you my allotment for a good price." That's the carbon markets. The biggest polluters who can't kick the carbon habit fast enough to stay within their quotas can purchase carbon credits from those who are polluting less. Gabon, a small country at the equator on Africa's west coast, may be on the verge of the largest carbon credit sale in history. Dr. Lee White, Gabon's Minister of Forests, Oceans, Environment, and Climate Change, says Gabon is the most climate-positive country on Earth. Gabon is actually the country that net absorbs the most CO2 of any country on Earth. Last year, we absorbed about 105 million tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and stored it in the vegetation and the soils of our forests. Gabon's rainforest covers 88 percent of the country. And it's teeming with a huge array of biodiversity. We have more plant species than the whole of West Africa combined. We have three quarters of the world's forest elephants. So we have hippos on the beach. We have thirty thousand gorillas, chimpanzees, about forty thousand mandrills. Where we have almost the entire world population. We have all of the rainforest biodiversity spilling out onto the Atlantic beach and even into the oceans. Gabon is one of the six countries making up the Congo Basin. We've been talking a lot throughout this series about how the Congo Basin, often referred to as the second lung of the world, is vital to life on the planet. Minister White explains why the Congo Basin matters so much. The Congo Basin forests hold about eight years of global carbon emissions, and the Congo Basin is much more than just a carbon stock. It sends rainfall. We talk of aerial rivers. Sending rainfall to the Ethiopian highlands, filling the Blue Nile, sending water to Egypt. So Congo Basin is the heart of the African continent. The ecosystem services of Gabon and the wider Congo Basin are absolutely critical to keeping our planet safe and maintaining the equilibrium of the planet. There's also the nightmare scenario of what happens if we don't protect the forests and don't keep to the target of limiting global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. We're heading for a three, four, five degree world, and that will kill the Congo Basin forests. So if we lose the Congo Basin, we lose the fight against climate change. If you lose the rainforests of Gabon and Congo. Then the Sahara Desert, that's already moving south at 500 meters per year, will be zooming south. We would be talking about hundreds of millions of climate refugees. So again, we come back to that pie, made up of the finite amount of global emissions to keep to the target of no more than two degrees. And across the table is Gabon, ready to sell 100 million tons of carbon credits. Gabon could do a deal with the UK. Who are emitting 400 million tons, or with South Korea, who are emitting about 700 million tons, and help some of these industrial nations that are never going to get down to zero. Minister White, who has been one of the lead negotiators for Africa at the annual UN Climate Conference, notes that in the last 20 years, there are a number of countries that have flipped from being net absorbers to emitting carbon dioxide. So we have to find a way. To make countries like Gabon economically viable, and encourage countries that have started slipping down that deforestation curve to get it back, and to restore their forests, and 
to once again start sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. In 2005, the UN introduced Red Plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation. It was an emergency mechanism that rewarded countries if they stopped or reduced deforestation. Critics say it penalized countries that had been carefully managing their forests, like Gabon, that has almost zero deforestation. We calculated that after the climate negotiations in Copenhagen in, in 2009, Gabon has absorbed about a billion tons of carbon dioxide. When we run the numbers for this Red Plus process, we actually only qualify for 90 million tons of carbon credits. Now, 90 million tons is still quite a lot, and it would be the biggest carbon credit sale. But there's another disparity. Red Plus carbon credits range from between $1 to $15 per ton, whereas the EU's carbon trading system is currently at $75. Why should a pristine ton of carbon in Gabon from the rainforest be worth less than a dirty ton of carbon from Poland? If there is a little bit of equity in this world, we should be able to put these Gabon carbon credits on the market for a sensible price. $30, $35. And if we can do that for Gabon, then we absolutely can replicate that for other countries. But how do you protect the forests, especially when countries have very real economic pressures to develop? Let's go on the ground in Gabon and hear what it sounds like to preserve the forest. It sounds pretty much like you'd expect, like this. But it also sounds like this. like this. And finally, like this. Hello, welcome to our showroom. Please let me show you around. Thank you. You're welcome, madame. From the forest to the lumber mills to furniture making and finally the showroom. In Gabon, it's all part of sustainably preserving the forest. Preserving forests doesn't mean never cutting down trees. Logging has been a major part of the Gabon economy for more than 100 years. But in 2009, they banned the export of logs and forced the opening up of investment for processing lumber, wood chips, and furniture making. And when you export a log from the Congo Basin, you're retaining 8% of the value of that log, and you're gifting 92% of the value, 92% of the jobs, to whoever buys it. So we can create the jobs in Gabon and keep the value in Gabon, And if we can then add a layer of carbon on top of that, maybe the forest becomes 20 times more valuable, and then it becomes viable to maintain those forests. The minister notes Gabon has about 400,000 jobs, but they have 800,000 youth currently in school. If in 10 years' time, 500,000 of those kids are angry young people without a job, that is a recipe for civil war. And so... The timber transformation industry that potentially can create three or four hundred thousand jobs is one of the best investments we can make for the peace and stability of our country. Gabon's forests are so huge, almost six million acres, that their sustainable harvesting of one tree per acre every 25 years still leaves them with about 240,000 logs a year, more than enough to support a timber transformation industry that can create the necessary jobs for Gabon's youth. We can exploit the forest to save the forest. 
we can create the jobs and the economy we need to adapt to climate change. We can combine sustainable forest management, timber transformation, carbon credits and ecosystem credits potentially in the future. Then maintaining those ecosystems becomes actually a, a profitable, viable business model for the country. Gabon has shown real innovation in monetizing its biodiversity and conservation efforts, but the carbon credits and wood products are easily identified assets that can be sold. Without an asset like that to sell, it can be challenging to find ways to get funding to flow. Countries are looking at new options, from green funds to conservation trusts. And there's a new continent-wide solution on the horizon. Let's start with a green fund in Rwanda. In 2010, the Rwandan government developed a green growth and climate resilience strategy. But it needed a financing vehicle. So in 2012, the government launched the Rwandan Green Fund, aimed at being an engine of green growth. The fund is able to mobilize and manage funds, but it's also able to invest in the early stages of a project when it's most risky. That helps an idea, such as constructing zero-carbon housing, to get off the ground reducing the risk level so that other investors will come in. Today, the Rwandan Green Fund is the largest of its kind in Africa. Teddy Mugabu, the fund's CEO, explains the purpose. Our mandate is to mobilize climate finance to support Rwanda achieve its ambitious goal of becoming carbon-neutral economy and climate resilience. Through these funds, we issue calls for proposals and select the best projects. Mugabu and her team work with funders interested in addressing climate issues, and then use those funds to support projects. You know, the key criteria we look at is the impact, how many jobs are going to be created, how many livelihoods, and how are we reducing vulnerability to poverty. The fund plays a coordinating role for all climate finance that comes in and makes sure it's being used to maximum effect. They're also able to quantify how much their investments are reducing carbon emissions. To date, we've been able to mobilize uh, close to 250 million uh, worth of grants from different partners. They might not be huge volumes of funds, but with the little that we have, we need to be able to play that catalytic role, provide the initial capital costs, de-risk projects that can now make it attractive for the private sector to come on board and scale. Let's move on to another solution from the island nation of Madagascar, off the east coast of Africa. 80% of their biodiversity is not found anywhere else in the world. When you lose biodiversity in Madagascar, it's gone forever. About 20 years ago, the government started creating protected areas, and today there are 123. But their challenge was finance. International NGOs had an answer, a conservation trust fund. The initial endowment was $1 million. Alan Raharijana, executive director of the Madagascar Biodiversity Fund, says it's now ballooned to $140 million. And, and no one believed it's uh, 20 years ago, and it's there. And uh, I can say that it's a model that really uh, works. And we've seen it particularly during the pandemic uh, when uh, we had no tourists. And all those protected areas could survive because... Our organization was there to bring the funding that uh, missed because uh, of the tourism. The endowment fund is invested in international markets, though not in oil and mining, and earns about $5 million in revenues per year. They prioritized all 123 protected areas, 
of which they're currently funding 47. But as they get more revenue, they'll add more according to the priority list. We give salaries, we pay for electricity, we pay for uh, transport and so on. Why? Because nobody wants to do that. But because we do that, then it, that makes easier for the protected area manager to mobilize other finance. Madagascar recently did a study on the economic value of their protected areas. We cannot protect what we don't value. The economic value of the protected areas is around 8 billion U.S. dollars per year. From, from water, hydroelectricity, tourism, all, all kinds of things. Like many who work in conservation and climate change, there is frustration. In Madagascar, and probably in Africa, we have one generation. Yeah, we are all losing our biodiversity. And that's the battle of the Madagascar Biodiversity Fund. And that's why we need, desperately need much more money than what we have now. But he says that international funders often don't get the urgency. Or they say they don't have the financing mechanisms or tools to address the urgency. People say tools, but really it's uh, just about the will. So I tell them if you don't have the tools, then create them. Because uh, we, won't, we won't need the tools in 10 years. This is really a still work in progress, but wow, time is running out. Across the continent, the lack of funding is a constant hurdle. In July, at the African Protected Areas Congress in Kigali, Rwanda, Ethiopia's former Prime Minister Halimeriam made an announcement of a pan-African solution. A pact at its core, an ambitious vision of creating an independent, African-led, hybrid sustainable financing mechanism that empowers those who manage, protect, and conserve the areas across the continent. The idea started during COVID. There was no tourism revenue, and government and donor funds were diverted to the health and economic crisis. Andrea Athenas, VP for Enterprise and Investments at AWF, met with protected area directors at the onset of the pandemic and recalls what they told her. We've got a window of maybe six months through this crisis, and that was in a good scenario. And this is not unusual for us. And we rarely have sufficient resources. This is actually indicative of a chronic under-resourcing that we face across the continent. They had a bold idea, a Pan-African Conservation Trust, APACT, that could finally get these areas out from under the constant funding shortages. And it's not any one protected area or any one country that's going to be able to maintain the integrity of that overall system. And therefore, you need to go beyond what might be a favorite animal or area. And the idea is to really solve this at a systems level across Africa, because if we negotiate case by case or site by site, we'll never get there. Africa has 8,600 protected and conserved areas, comprising about 6 million square kilometers. Experts say you need 300 to $1,000 per kilometer to effectively manage these areas. That means 1.8 to $6 billion a year. Athenas and the team projected a 3% return on investment and realized they would need a $200 billion endowment. Sounds like a lot, but Athenas saw it through a different lens. Thinking about protected areas as infrastructure, not as parks, you start to get a sense of reasonableness in that magnitude. The kinds of investments that oil and gas companies are making in 
offshore oil and gas drilling. Paolo Gomez, the chairman of Orango Investments Corporation and a former executive director at the World Bank, is on the APAC steering committee. We have to move away from country-by-country country kind of contribution to a real discussion at the global level using the global institution as an entry point for much more resources to be allocated for climate change. Gomez is specifically eyeing the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and their special drawing rights, a reserve asset created by the IMF that has always been allocated to countries according to their share in the IMF. But there are now calls to reform the system and use those funds for major crises, like climate change. APACT is being designed as a hybrid fund that has an endowment for operating costs, a grant mechanism for developing new projects or responding to emergency situations, and a private investment component that would offer a return on investment. What's interesting is that it's being designed in consultation with the end users. Athenis explains. Because we've been designing this bottom-up from the protected area authorities and managers themselves, when you're looking at a fund design through the lens of those who are the ultimate beneficiaries, you start to think about the solutions that are going to be empowering to them. For Gomez, the power of APAC will be that it's driven by Africans. Trust is seeded by Africans. We believe that it will be a strong signal of leadership. And African leadership are supportive, the African Union also. So now is uh, to make sure that uh, we bring partners in it. APAC expects to be up and running in 2024 and will be open to all African countries. New financing vehicles are key to creating the resources needed for sustainable conservation. But they all depend on the questions asked at the beginning of this episode. What is the value of nature? And if our lives depend on conserving Africa's biodiversity, who should pay and who should benefit? Next up in the series, people at the center of conservation. It's the linchpin of the African-led model. We'll delve into what it means for people on the ground and explore how focusing on people is the best way to save nature. The idea that you need wildlife management is a Western concept. Wildlife doesn't have to be managed. As, and COVID recently has showed, showed us, you leave wildlife alone, wildlife thrives. We need to manage ourselves better. Before we go, let's enjoy a bit of nature with Alain Rahari-Juana of the Madagascar Biodiversity Fund. There's a region where we have these protected areas. There was this beautiful uh, picture that I had in front of me with the sunset and the baobab. And uh, wow, what a wonderful place. I took my telephone and... Uh, and I just put uh, these songs that I really love from uh, Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful word. And I just realized that the earth is, is a wonderful word and that we should absolutely protect it. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful Thanks so much for listening to Africa Forward. I'm Carol Pinot, the host and executive producer of the program. Our producers include Rosie Julin, Yore Wu, and Rob Sachs. Assistant producers, Alessandra Salase and Lily Anderson. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about what we're doing. 
Africa Forward's second season is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation and produced by FP Studios. All opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of the African Wildlife Foundation or FP Studios. For more information on African Wildlife Foundation, please check out awf.org. And for more on FP Studios, you can go to foreignpolicy.com and click on Podcasts.